Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. For more than five years, Deep State Radio has been on top of all of the key foreign policy and national security stories impacting the world. We're grateful to our members who make all of this possible and hope that you will consider supporting our work by becoming a member. Members get access to exclusive bonus content, the opportunity to participate in discussions via our member Slack community, our weekly member briefings, and our DSR daily brief newsletter delivered to your inbox each evening. Members also receive all of our content via private member feed that you can add to your favorite podcast app. And we're not stopping there, as we'll soon be announcing additional programming and content partnerships to make membership an absolute must-have. To become a member, visit bit.ly slash dsrmember and enter code MAY2022 at checkout to gain access to all of our exclusive benefits for just $5 per month. Thank you for your support. Nine. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the podcast. As you know, periodically when we have found a book that we think you really ought to read, we sit and we talk to the author. In this case, the author is Yasha Mauk, and the new book is called The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure. Yasha is Associate Professor of the Practice of International Affairs at Johns Hopkins University. He's a contributing editor at The Atlantic and founder of the website Persuasion. Hi, Yasha. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good. Are you worn down by book touring? No. I mean, I think if, if an author starts to complain about having too many uh, opportunities to talk about the book, they really should be politely executed. I agree with you on that, on that front, although um, having done this before, I also find that it can be kind of wearing. This book is really important. Your other books have been great. This is a subject you've devoted a lot of thought to, but it seems particularly timely. It seemed timely in the context of the shooting in Buffalo last week. It seems timely in the context of some of the responses that emerged in the Twitterverse and elsewhere following the shooting yesterday and some of the platforms taken by American political candidates during the past couple of weeks of primaries. I guess the question that most people, at least people in the United States, are going to be thinking as they read it, is our diverse democracy falling apart and can it endure? Your book's pretty optimistic. How do you feel about the U.S. right now? <laughs> well, look, um, you know, I, I like to call myself a democracy crisis hipster. I thought that American democracy was in crisis before it was cool and I started to warn about the rise of authoritarian populists when most people thought the idea that they could actually win an election or win the presidency was fanciful. So 
I've been worried about uh, the rise of far-right populists, about the extent of our partisan political polarization, about the threat to our democratic institutions for a very long time. And I continue to be very worried about those things. So uh, in that sense, I can't say that I'm a founder of unalloyed optimism. I do think, though, that one of the reasons for the rise of this political moment is our grappling with a deeper historical transformation of building societies that are much more ethnically and religiously diverse than they used to be, and most importantly, in a context like the United States, but are actually trying to be more inclusive than they used to be, because some of the groups that have always been present on American soil since the foundation of the American Republic used to be excluded in terrible and viable ways, and violent ways, now at least formally included in a way that was not true in the past. And that is what I call the Great Experiment. It is fraught with difficulties and dangers as well. I have a whole part of a book which outlines why that is actually a very difficult thing to do, why building a diverse democracy is really hard. But on that count, I am quite optimistic because I think that certainly the far right, but also a lot of the mainstream and the left, also a lot of my friends and colleagues and acquaintances tend to underestimate the progress we've made and tend to fall into too much of a fatalism about the state of society, not in Washington, not on cable news, but in terms of how Americans actually live with each other across the country. I think it's a good point. And certainly we're at a moment in our history where we have a woman who is of Asian and uh, African descent, who's the vice president of the United States. We have the most diverse cabinet we've ever had in our history. We have the most diverse set of judicial nominees we've ever had in our history. We've, we've broken a lot of, of, of barriers. As I think about what you wrote and what you're saying, you know, I sort of like to pull the camera back quite a ways. Because it seems to me that this tension between maintaining cultural identity and giving in to the cultural ebb and flow of the planet goes back to the beginning of time. And that, in fact, every culture is an amalgam of other cultures that, and this might be a little controversial, but that all culture is appropriation. In other words, Every language comes from other languages. Every religious belief blends religious beliefs and so forth. Is that your view? Is it helpful to look at this in the longer term historical context? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's two sort of slightly different things in this question, but let me try and touch on both of those. So the first is that I love America. I'm a new American citizen, but God love this country. Sometimes people tend to be too obsessed with its own present and its own history. And there are very important things uh, about our history that help to explain what the country is like today. There's also many important things that we can learn from the history of other countries. And I think what I, one of the things that I try to do in this book is to dissenter the debate about how to make diverse democracy work in the United States by drawing on some lessons about why diverse societies around the world have failed and why some of them have succeeded as well. And, uh, you know, the most fundamental things that make it hard to build these diverse democracies are universal. They are uh, the human tendency, for example, to form groups uh, and then to discriminate in favor of the members against anybody who doesn't belong. 
and that is something to which uh, of which people and on every continent and in every culture have been guilty. Secondly, it is the fact that often in the history of humanity, the criteria that were used for excluding people in these kinds of ways weren't arbitrary. They were drawn from a set of important attributes of ascriptive identity of ethnicity and race and religion and language and culture and nationality. And when you look at some of the worst wars and civil wars and genocides and forms of ethnic cleansing, they not always, but usually had one of these criteria as the motivator. I've inferred that democratic institutions can, in certain respects, exacerbate those problems. And I'm a big believer in democracy, but democratic institutions always incentivize a search for a majority. And so it makes it much more tempting to say, well, we used to be in the majority, and now suddenly this other group is growing as a share of a population, and perhaps suddenly they'll win, and they'll completely change what's going on in this country. That fear is less pronounced in a monarchy in which you just have to trust the monarch and you don't have any political power anyway. And so I think that uh, you know, thinking about America in the context of these big free challenges can be really fruitful. Now, the second point you were making is about uh, mutual cultural influence. And for me, I always thought of this desire for cultural purity as a deeply right-wing value. That when people like Narendra Modi today in India, people like Viktor Orban in Hungary say, we have one nation and we should have one culture. And if people come in and start celebrating Halloween, that is a really dangerous import and good Indians have to resist that. Or if people want to come and they want to be Muslim or they want to be gay, in Hungary, that is not true Hungarian culture, and we have to push back against it. That is the, the, the national monoculturalism that the right and far right in particular has traditionally embraced. So for me, I've been surprised by how quickly and how easily some of us on the left have embraced in the last years a notion of cultural appropriation, which puts any form of mutual cultural influence within subnational groups under general pole of suspicion. Because as you're saying, diverse societies work when they can draw on all of their resources, when they influence each other, when people forge a new culture. Now, we have to do that in fair ways. And sometimes people have had the cultural products stolen from them in deeply unfair ways. But the problem of that was not the mutual influence. The problem of that were much more straightforward forms of injustice that you can describe and fight against without putting those forms of cultural influence and cultural synthesis under a general pole of suspicion. Interesting, because much of progress in the world has come in environments that were distinguished by their diversity. So cities, which brought together many different kinds of people, whether from across a country or if it was a port city, for example, from around the world, became these kind of crucibles where different ideas could come into conflict, but also change each other and produce new thinking. And rural areas tend to produce skepticism of outsiders. And in the United States, that's what we see right now. We see urban areas that are more tolerant and embrace diversity and benefit from it. And we see less populated areas doing the opposite. And um, and there's something to that throughout history, agrarian societies, landlocked societies, others tend to have a history like that. What do you think of those patterns? Well, so first of all, I, I, I strongly agree with you that actually 
a lot of progress in history has happened when different cultures have met each other. And that, as we were saying earlier, it's very hard to think of any significant human achievement that doesn't draw in deep ways on the achievements of many different cultures. Uh, you know, this is a very silly example from a kind of American culture war context, but the college students who were offended that the college uh, served culturally inauthentic uh, banh mi sandwiches didn't seem to have realized that the banh mi sandwich itself is, of course, a fusion of uh, traditionally Vietnamese ingredients and the French baguette. And so celebrating what opportunities come from uh, these different cultural moments to meet is, is, is right. Now, at the same time, it is, of course, incredibly important for people to have economic opportunity. And one of the things that makes it easier for people in cities to be optimistic at the moment when people in the countryside is that they're much closer to centers of economic opportunity. You know, I'm really struck in the United States by the fact that, you know, if you were a young college graduate who was hoping to have a stable career, uh, you know, live in one city for hopefully the rest of a life and build a family, uh, in the 1970s, it would have been a really tough choice between somewhere like New York and a mid-sized city in Iowa or Nebraska or many other parts of the country. Wouldn't at all have been obvious which would give you a better life and even better career prospects. Today, that has just radically reversed. And so the parts of a country that have more diversity also happen to be the parts of a country where people actually have economic opportunity. And that reinforces this perhaps natural tendency but if you're surrounded by diversity, but you're also doing pretty well and you're in a place that's actually working pretty well, you're not so scared by it. But if you're in a, country, in a part of a country that actually itself has less diversity, and you also feel like you haven't been given what's your due in life, and you're really worried, understandably so, about whether your children are going to be able to succeed, especially if they don't move away from their community, then you're also likely to say, perhaps all of this diversity that's happening in these other parts of a country is really, really scary. How does technology change it? And I guess even as I pose the question, I think the answer is it may be that it doesn't change it. It accelerates or amplifies some of the consequences. But we live in an era in which everybody is connected to everybody else, which ought to be a great cultural integrator and also should make us less afraid of other cultures. But the way we're using the technology is to create those groups you were talking about earlier to create bubbles of like-minded people. We see this particularly in the United States, for example, politically, but you see it in other ways too. You know, people with common fetishes find the same place to go on the web as well. Do you think the equation will change because the way we interact is changing? Yeah, well, let's put it this way. I think we thought the technology would change something fundamental about humans. And instead, what it's turned out to be is to supercharge a very old instinct of humans. So when the internet really took off and tech utopianism was the prevailing intellectual current, and this is not so long ago, when I started teaching class called Democracy in the Digital Age at Harvard, you know, as recently as 2013, I saw my task as a teacher as convincing students that the internet and social media might also have dangers because their assumption coming into the class was 
this is gonna connect everybody to each other, right? And you're gonna get these wonderful social revolutions like you did in Egypt and Tahrir Square. And it's gonna really be a force for progress. And, and part of the reason for that is that people thought, look, it was always incredibly expensive to communicate with people who are far away and very hard to do, very time consuming. And now suddenly you can be in a chat room or later in you know, one thread on Twitter with somebody who's in you know, Brazil or Kenya, with somebody within your own country who has a very different identity from you, lives in a different city. And so we're going to build all these connections and come to understand each other and come to like each other. And it's going to create a better world, right? Instead, what we found out is that the very old tendency that humans have, which I mentioned earlier, build groups, become capable of real cooperation with real altruism towards, real heroism for the people who are members of those groups, and become capable of terrible hatred and callousness and sometimes violence towards the people who are not members of that group. Well, it turns out if you can choose who you want to talk to, you don't choose the kid in Kenya who perhaps has some kind of interest with you, but otherwise has a very different life. You choose the person who is as most like you as possible and you actually make it easier to say, you know, and everybody who doesn't share our exact identity is a, is a, is a, is a bad person or our exact set of political beliefs or our fandom of this particular band or whatever else it might be. And so I think it turns out that technology has supercharged that form of groupishness rather than changing our human nature in any significant way. It's interesting that we live in a moment in which there seems to be a prevailing global context between political philosophies of inclusion and political philosophies of exclusion globalists versus ethno-nationalists, and that it's not limited to any one place. You mentioned Modi, but you could mention Putin or Bolsonaro or Orban or whomever. The notion that globalist has become a kind of a epithet that somehow you know, implies dilution or threats of the other, as well as kind of exploitation, exists in societies worldwide and in languages worldwide, you'll find people talking about it in China as well as in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I'm not sure it's new, but it's manifesting itself in a different way. What's your, what's your sense of that and outlook? We do have, I think, two debates. Uh, you know, one debate is about democracy and autocracy. So it's a competition between people who want open societies and who want societies which respect the rights of individual citizens, including those to be critical of a government or those to be full members of society, even if you're part of an ethnic or religious minority, against uh, systems which uh, deny that. Now, some systems deny that explicitly, like those uh, in, 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 in Russia or even more extremely in North Korea. Some are real threats to the political system because they have found a kind of hack by which they can destroy those liberties without ever being upfront about the intention of doing so. What's so interesting about these authoritarian populists is that they say, we're more democratic. We truly speak for the people. We're not anti-democratic. But then once they get into power, they concentrate so much power in their own hands and they're so hostile to independent institutions 
that it becomes very difficult to remove them from power by democratic means, even though they may have been democratically uh, elected. Um, but I think there's also a second sort of vision uh, debate about what society should look like within democracies, what the nature of a set of institutions might be that actually can sustain that ethnic and religious diversity in a meaningful way. And the case I make in this book is that philosophical liberalism can do that better than either uh, the various authoritarian traditions of the right or, or something like the philosophical tradition of communitarianism, which is basically saying the way to build a society like the United States is not to think of ourselves as individual citizens with rights and responsibilities, but rather to think of society as an association of associations or a group of groups in which you are deeply defined by the ethnic or religious group you're, you're a part of. And that is primary to your rights. And I think that's wrong because we need to keep the peace in a deeply diverse society to grant people a kind of double freedom. So the first freedom is against an oppressive state, against a tyrannical majority, that I can criticize the president, that I can say what I want on social media without being censored, that I can worship in the way I think right, that I can be treated equally even if I come from an ethnic minority group which has historically been oppressed. Those are the rights against outsiders, as it were. But there's also a second set of freedoms we need, which is the freedoms against our own group. Because a lot of the time, the way that people are oppressed is because of their own parents or their own priests or rabbis or imams who tell them how to live. And we also need a society in which if you so choose, and most people probably won't do that, you can say, hey, mom and dad, I want to live very differently from you. I want to marry this person. I have this sexual orientation. Uh, I'm going to carry out this profession. Uh, and you can't stop me from doing that. And I think only philosophical liberalism can recognize the need for this double freedom, which makes us respect groups, but respect groups because membership in them is voluntary not groups as constitutive elements of society, which will always structure your life, no matter what your own preferences and choices are, as is the case in many parts of the world, like Lebanon. It's very, very interesting. And I really strongly recommend the book to, to, to everybody. I, I have to say, because it's so timely, but because the issues are so essential here, it's called The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure. One last sort of question slash comment coming out of this. My wife studies cultures and, and differences between cultures, and she regularly brings up what I would characterize. She doesn't use this term, but I would characterize it as the culture of culture. In other words, how we view the issues that you're talking about in this book. What are our ingrained beliefs and impulses? And do they help or do they not help? And the example I think of, which is one she cites all the time and is related to your last point, is the United States of America tends to think of itself and, and refer to itself as a melting pot. The implication being that everybody comes here, gets thrown into one pot, bubbles up, and becomes one thing. Uh, Canada, as she points out, often uses the language that it is a mosaic. And that is that, you know, it makes a beautiful picture together, but each of the individual pieces 
can be quite different from one another and that the, the beauty of the picture comes from the differences. Having even something slight like that in your national narrative seems to me to be something that could carry a lot of weight in this regard. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I explicitly discuss these ideas, as you know, in the book. So, you know, I think the melting pot, actually, when you look back at the origin of the term, is quite appealing. There's this beautiful play by Israel Zangwal, which is this triumphant love story of an immigrant and this girl he falls in love with. And it turns out that her father had most of his family killed and murdered. Uh, and yet they decide to endure in their love and get married. It's a beautiful story. But the way that the idea of a melting pot has been used often is to say you have to leave all of the, not just the enmities of the old world, but also the cultural particularities of the old world behind. We have to forge the new American man and the cultural attributes of your ancestors really are not going to be a part of that. Uh, or if they are part of that, then in some small way and everybody becomes indistinguishable. That I think is uh, too homogenizing a vision of what the society should look like. I also have concerns though, about the Canadian model of a mosaic. First of all, mosaics don't happen to be beautiful. Somebody has to place the different tiles very carefully. So it's actually a slightly creepy metaphor when you think about it. But secondly, I, I worry about the way in which it says, hey, we're going to have these different communities and they're completely separate from each other and they don't actually interact and there's no real connective tissue. And isn't that beautiful? And if you fast forward that by 50 or 100 or 200 years, I think that can lead to very deep tensions and it can lead to a lack of solidarity, a lack of shared patriotism, which makes it very hard to sustain the key institutions of a country or to remedy conflicts or to ensure that they don't deepen and harden over time as they did in many countries around the world. So I actually suggest a third metaphor, which is that of a public park, because a public park allows people to make different kinds of choices. So you and I, after this conversation, could go, I think you're in Cambridge, we could go to Cambridge Common and sit down for a coffee and say, we just want to talk to each other and continue having this great conversation. Or we could go and chat with people who are sitting there and make new friendships and forge new connections. Both of those choices are perfectly fine, but we can look at a park from the outside and say, if nobody ever makes new connections within it, that's a little bit of a problem. We'd want to have a kind of park where sometimes people have serendipity and they run into each other and they forge new friendships across the lines to which they're accustomed. And that, I think, is the right vision for our society. In a country like the United States, people are groupish. They always have been groupish. They always will be groupish. They'll be members of ethnic, uh, cultural, religious communities. And that's perfectly fine. We, we, we don't have to be concerned about that. But we also need enough connective tissues among all of us, enough individual rights and responsibilities for each of us that the country doesn't just become reduced to a group of groups, but we have something in common as Americans that allows us to have solidarity with each other, that ensures that politics is striving for a common set of ideals about which we can have deep disagreements, about which we can have debates, rather than just an exercise of sort of group interest bargaining a country in which we actually are excited to live rather than having to tolerate those other people who don't really have anything in common with us who are also around. And so that's the vision of, of a kind of future of diverse democracy that I try to, to set out in, in my new book, in The Great Experiment. Yeah, and I love the, I love the metaphor and uh, was going to turn to it here at the end. But I think, you know, the point you make, uh, you know, yes, I am in Cambridge at the moment. You could go to the Cambridge Commons or the Boston Commons. And in fact, there is something in that old way of designing cities, the British way, 
although it existed elsewhere, where there is a commons at the center, right, which refers to the shared space in other societies takes the form of a market square. But that, I I think that metaphor works better. And uh, I share your view that I, you know, I think just as I think globalization is a historical trend, not something we legislate one way or another, this process that you describe of learning to live with this, although it goes forward and backwards, tends towards progress and tends towards the, the, the vision that you're talking about here. Once again, the book is The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure. It could not be more important It is also exceptionally well-written, has been exceptionally well-reviewed. I really encourage you to go out and get it. I thank you, Yasha, for joining us. And I hope perhaps at some other time you can join us again. I would love to. I'd love to come back. Thank you so much, David. Thank you, Yasha. Bye-bye.